Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Yes. Same. My the favorite book, thing. He, he's the hope killer. He's the he's the killer of everything that's good in the world. Yeah. I just you're, you're waiting for this like single combat or something. I think this is my favorite point. We we had so much build up to the hope killer and expectations are not met uh, in one sense, but in another better sense, just blown out of the water. Yeah, this is another kind of Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire-ish feel. Welcome, deniers of the faith. Welcome to another Phantology episode. Today, we're going to be talking about Blood Song by Anthony Ryan. This is Anthony Ryan's first published work and the first of a trilogy called the Raven Shadow Trilogy. And today, I have some special guests, Alex and Zach, from a Hero's Journey podcast. If you had an opportunity to listen to me on their show a couple of weeks ago, you'll know that this is the return favor, if you will. And they are back to talk with me about Blood Song. So I'll give you guys some time to uh, plug your channel and we can get started from there. Hey, thanks, Steven. This is Alex. You guys can find A Hero's Journey on Facebook at A Hero's Journey Pod or on Twitter at A underscore heroes underscore journey. We talk about different fantasy books just like they do on Phantology, but we, we try and look at the framework of the hero's journey and we do a little uh, debate club to see if a story follows that framework or not. And I usually win. Oh, no fly rebuttal. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> so I was on with you guys, what, a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about the hero's journey portion called the belly of the whale, which is the idea that the hero undergoes something and then comes out of it fundamentally changed, kind of like the story of Jonah from the Bible. And we talked in that episode about everything from the Stormlight Archive to Wheel of Time to The Matrix and Red Rising, I think maybe more. We probably touched on a few other different series. So I'm saying that to say that these guys, Alex and Zach, know what they're talking about. You guys have a very strong resume, and I think we'll have a very good conversation here about Bloodsong. Yeah, I hope so. For sure. So Bloodsong, this is honestly one of my favorite fantasy books. It's up there with Name of the Wind, which I call my favorite. And there's some similarities between them. So that might be somewhat of the reason why. But this one, I think I picked up back uh, several years ago. It was published in 2013, self-published initially. And then Anthony Ryan got on with the publisher, I think, Orbit, although you might want to fact check me there, and then produced two more books, which were frankly a little bit of a disappointment after how great Bloodsong was. He has since gone back to the world with The Wolf's Call, which I guess you'd call like the fourth book, but it's really kind of this new duology of books. And he's following that up with The Black Song, which actually comes out in August. So I'm excited for that one to come out. Anyway, uh, that said, what did you guys kind of think of the book? We're not going to do spoilers yet, but um, I mean, I told you it was one of my favorites to stack up there with you guys, or, or did you have some more issues with it? Uh, I want to put this as my favorite book ever. I do see a lot of parallels to Name of the Wind. Um, I don't think it's really a spoiler to say that this book reads like a tragedy similar to The Name of the Wind with that same framing mechanism. But the prose in Anthony Ryan's work isn't nearly as flowery or 
beautifully written as uh, Patrick Rothfuss in The Name of the Wind. But I think that the plotting in the book is excellent. The The pace is very fast. There's a lot of action. And I enjoy that. Just I wanted a little bit more character work and a little more flower in the prose I think would have been nice. Yeah, and I really, really, really enjoyed this book. Hadn't heard of it at all before uh, you guys told me to read it for this episode of the podcast. And I even commented after finishing it to Alex that I found it very similar to Name of the Wind. Actually, also my favorite uh, fantasy book, followed closely by uh, The Way of Kings and The Magician. Right on, right on. Those are great. Actually, in fact, the, The Magicians is the only book I've ever had to immediately go out and buy its sequel for. Just like just get in the car and go to the bookstore. But uh, I did something very similar to Bloodsong and downloaded its companion shortly after. I think that one thing I really like about uh, Bloodsong, the way that Anthony Ryan has created his world, is that there is enough detail to sink your teeth in, but it doesn't outright explain everything. It leaves enough mystery to be discovered throughout the story and kind of leave Anthony Ryan portions to build on in other series i think my favorite part about the book is just frankly the character of valen Alsorna. such an awesome dude maybe he's a little bit overpowered a little bit of a mary sue and that he kind of comes in and can solve most problems and and is always the smartest guy in the room and the most capable except for maybe a few things here and there but i mean if i said that i like name of the wind and that's my favorite book i really Obviously, something about me is that I don't have a problem with that because Quoth is kind of the same way. Yeah, I do want to push back. Valen, I thought initially was going to be the strongest and smartest and best at everything. But even among his small group in the school that he trains with, he's not the best at archery. He's not the best at horse riding. He's not the best at a whole laundry list of things. So he he does have some flaws, maybe a little bit more than Quoth, but not a whole lot. You're right. Yeah, I don't have any problem with Mary Sue's as a general rule. I, I I think we're reading a fantasy book and characters can have struggles and the things that they can be fighting against can be vastly superior to them, whether it's in magic or, or other forms of you know power. But I still think it's really cool to have a character that is extremely powerful in his own right. So before we actually get into spoilers for the book, we like to do a little segment called Content Warnings because books don't have ratings on them like movies or tv shows do and i think people like to know sometimes so blood song is has a little bit of a content warning there is some stronger swearing there is obviously a lot of violence i pretty much any fantasy book you pick up is going to have the violent component to it some more than others shout out joe abercrombie (laughs) Uh, and then there's a little bit of sexual content but it's it's fairly like fade to black type stuff so I'd say most are okay reading this. Um, I think I read it when I was a little on the younger side. Yeah, I, I don't think that there's a lot of vivid descriptions of violence or anything horrible. I, I think it would be fine for a lot of people, especially teens, to read, I think. Yeah, um, and I'd say this only because of my own experiences when I was young. I had read the um, the Golden Compass and that series and it wasn't until like years after I'd read it that my mom actually said something along the lines of like, oh, you shouldn't read that because she heard from like a religious group, something against it. And this book, like many others in the fantasy genre, delves into like its own, I guess, religions in a way that some people could be bothered by, I suppose. But in general, um, I think 
it's delineated enough from our own world that it's not a problem. Okay, so moving into the actual events of the story. And as we do this, you guys specialize in A Hero's Journey. Obviously, that's the name of your podcast. I would love to hear your insights as to specific elements of the story that fall into different elements of the classical hero's journey. I'm not as well versed in those things. And I think it'd be a nice way to kind of marry our two podcasts together. So no pressure. This is the first I've mentioned it to you. <laughs> well, there's there's a ton of evidence. So I'm sure we can pick out at least a few. Yeah, usually we take notes. So we're probably not going to hit everything, but we'll, we'll do our best. <laughs> I mean, we can pick out at least the couple that are in most present. Like sometimes in our podcast, and we even admit this, we are twisting kind of our view in order to try to hit as many as we can. And that's the whole point of the debate format. And this will highlight the ones that really hit home. Nice. So going into spoilers and feel free to stop me, jump into whatever thoughts and tangents you guys have on these different sections of the book. But we start with a framed story. And when I say that, I mean, it's somewhat similar to the way that Name of the Wind works. We kind of talked about that, where there is a story within the story. And the story here is there's a historian who is chronicling these events of this infamous guy named Valen Alsorna, the hope killer, they call him. And we don't know much about him yet. This prologue starts through the eyes of Berniers, the Alperian historian. And pretty shortly afterwards, we launch into Valen's tale. It's different than The Name of the Wind because it's not told in first person. It is still third person, but it's unique. Although some say that there is unreliable narration in, in, in Name of the Wind, I think this is one of the strongest examples of an unreliable narrator that I've seen in fantasy. Maybe you guys have some other examples that you might want to discuss, but there are blatantly some times where the text that Valen is conveying to Verniers is false, and you don't get the sense of what actually happened until later on when you get Valen's perspective of what really happened. So I thought that was cool, kind of like a a sub mystery going on, uh, going on beneath the surface. Anyway, so Valen, as the events start, is going off to a duel after five years of imprisonment by the Alperians. We don't really know what has happened here. We're not going to get that towards the end. And it seems like this is a bad situation for him, even though at the same time, there's like, wait, this dude is so infamous and he's obviously going to be the main character. You kind of think he's going to be able to figure things out, but that's not going to come till the very end of the book. So that said, what did you guys think of how this one started? I really enjoy this framing mechanism. Like I said, I think it sets up Valen very well as a tragic character because he's been chained, he's been in prison for years, and it doesn't seem all-powerful, all-knowing, as he does a little bit in the frame of the text. And I do want to say, I didn't notice that, that Valen was unreliably narrating to the chronicler for a while. Like in Name of the Wind, we assume that the text we read is exactly what Quoth is telling Chronicler. But here, the text we read is nowhere close to what Valen is telling the uh, the Chronicler here. I really enjoy that. Um, I think it's more fun. Like you can tell that Valen isn't is still trying to hold back a little bit. He still thinks he has reasons to not just lay everything out for the world to see because he thinks his story is going to continue. And I'll add to that, Alex, in that it was near the end of the book where I actually was able to realize that the chronicler, things were being glanced over and slightly edited. I think one of the, 
the instances where Valen kept a little bit back from the chronicler, I, I don't know if it was one of the like more romantic scenes or something along those lines where he didn't want to share his complete feelings that it was kind of blatantly stated before that I had just assumed similar to Alex that everything was being related as is. And I think there's also a mention later in the series or late in that book, at least when the historian is dealing with somebody that he talks about how he himself changed things because he just assumed Valen was talking on superstition or something similar, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Right away. He talks about how he's written the history of the Alperian war and everything. And then Valen says, actually, all of that is false. <laughs> so here's the real story. <laughs> and it's also interesting to get the framing device character, the historian, who has such a hatred for our primary character, for reasons that become evident as the story progresses. But, you know, usually in the couple instances where I've come something along this similar, similarly, it's someone looking back on it, usually fondly, but never have I seen someone who just has a hatred for the person right from the get-go. And interesting by the end, that opinion has kind of changed, right? Because the reader and Bernier's both get a, a, a real idea of kind of the motivations that pushed Valen along the way. And you realize the real villains were some other people, namely the king. <laughs> and the princess too, I would say. Uh, I think they're both evil to manipulative, however you want to see them on that spectrum. And I did see that respect growing, and I really enjoyed that. The respect between uh, Valen and Veneers, the chronicler. It's funny that you just say evil being the king. The king was my second favorite character in the whole book. I just think he was, he, I think he was awesome. But I mean, awesome, maybe not the best word for a guy who did a lot of bad stuff. But I, I thought it was a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool character. And I really enjoyed the way that he thought through things. Yeah, he might have been evil, but he was certainly pretty capable. I mean, maybe the war with Alperia was not the greatest idea, but he was typically able to get what he wanted out of Valen, at least. He seemed to be able, on a personal level, to get most everybody to do what he wanted and, on a strategic level, have great success. I wonder if the the war was more of a last-ditch effort to cement his genius in a way that led him to take risks that weren't necessarily in the best interest. One of the things being the Bluestone conversation that he has with Valen um, that we know ended up not being the most truthful of, of conversations. So just for sake of naming the king is Janice and the princess is Lerna. And one of the things, actually one of my criticisms of the book was the names were tough. The naming convention was like somewhat consistent, but there were a lot of vowels in all the names and a lot of similar sounding names and a lot of characters. And so it became difficult to remember exactly which minor character was which, especially with how quickly the plot was moving. So I don't know if you guys had an issue with that at all. I agree 100%. At the back of every book, there's a dramas personas with listing all the character names. And I'd like to say that I referenced that more. But sometimes I would just assume that these secondary and even well, more primarily tertiary characters didn't really need to be remembered by name. And I could just remember them by their actions. And, and hopefully it wouldn't muddy the story too much. I'm not big on names either. And unfortunately, one of the issues that got created was, yeah, maybe that works for one book, but then you roll into the next book mm -hmm. and there's not any kind of recap or anything like like some books have, which are awesome. I love when that when that's the case. 
And there's not a great recap of this series available on Reddit either. So if you're trying to read the second book after taking some time away from the first and you expect to understand everything, seriously, good luck. Because there are so many characters and, and guys you think are minor actually do end up doing stuff with almost no revelation as to, or almost no reminder as to what they were doing or what they're known for. It's, it's a little rough. Not just that. There is a, a good amount of titles that characters go by. At many, in many instances, the Lord of or you know, Master of, and we're just supposed to remember that that goes with the name. And then, uh, you know, there's things hinted at that someone was somebody else, but they just don't outright say it. For example, the Cumberland Archer, Antesh. Yeah, Black Arrow. is, But is the Black Arrow, but they never really exactly say he's the Black Arrow. They just kind of hint at it. So yeah. I, I think you're right in that aspect. Part of the hard part for me was a lot of the secondary and tertiary characters didn't have a lot to them. There wasn't a lot of depth. Aside from Sharon, the sister of the Fifth Order, the... The Master of the Sixth Order, whose name is escaping me right now, Master Solus, and the Order of Brothers that Valen runs around with, I couldn't really tell you what one character was thinking or feeling. That was what I was trying to say earlier, that the characters felt a little flat to me, and it didn't help when I was trying to remember what they were doing, or who they were aligned with, or anything. I think that's a totally fair criticism. I would say part of it is just because of how much is happening, how quickly things are moving. There's not enough space in this one single book to flesh out all of these minor characters. I think another series we could compare this to, there's a lot of the same flavor as A Song of Ice and Fire, the Game of Thrones series. And so I would say if you were to take this one book and really like expand a lot of these different elements and maybe add in more point of view characters... You'd have a pr pretty similar book to A Song of Ice and Fire, but there, since it's so established, so long-winded, for lack of a better term, you have enough time to know who all these people are. But here, it's just kind of, you're just getting guys thrown at you, and then they're gone for just a few pages. And you're like, okay, is this guy important? I don't know. And they may pop up, they may not. I think the primary difference, at least in my eyes, between this and A Song of Ice and Fire is, as someone who's never seen the Game of Thrones TV show, but has read the books, and I... I, I, I die on the hill that I said I won't watch the TV show until the books are finished, which has proved to be a, a, a flawed premise. <laughs> but I really like how when, you, when anybody's reading a book for any reason or watching a movie and the, and the primary character gets into trouble, you know, hey, I'm 30 minutes into this movie. I'm five pages into this book, five chapters into this book, and I can see the rest of the book in my hand. This character's fine. So there doesn't as a reader, you know that he's going to get out of the of the difficulty. One of the, the masterful things I think about Us on an Ice and Fire is how utterly detached George R.R. R. Martin is from his crew of characters. And he will yeah. just, just kill them for the point of the story. And so while the characters are extremely diverse, I think they fade more than end. And the primary characters in this book do have a certain amount of plot armor that I think is devoid uh, in A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, that's a key difference. I, I, I like that explanation. I'd say Song of Ice and Fire is a little more harsh and brutal in that term with the characters. While this world of Anthony Ryan's here is kind of the same, like gray, gritty a little bit, not not nearly like a Joe Abercrombie type world. Um, there's a same flavor, but the characters you assume are probably going to be okay. 
by the end, we do have some killed off, though. Yeah, and they suffer various hardships. Yeah, they, they're not immune from things that are difficult or trying. So moving on to, uh, to, to getting into a little more of the story. So after Valen starts telling a story, we immediately get introduced to Valen's world, the, the backdrop of the framing story, or the, the, the main story that the framing story is the backdrop of. And Valen is introduced as a young kid that is dumped on the steps of this foreboding order house. It's the sixth order. This is the order of fighting defenders of the faith. These are the dudes who are going to basically solve all the problems that the, that the country um, is faced with and that the king uses fairly indiscriminately. So Valen is is put here. His father was the previous battle lord, and there are these different orders, and each one kind of serves the nation in different ways. I don't know. It's kind of like a dystopian book where everyone's sorted into different houses or different factions or whatever. So Valen is on number six, and these are the, the dudes that are going to fight and kill people pretty effectively. And he's immediately put into some pretty brutal training as a kid. Um, he meets up with a group of buddies, the main ones are Canis, Norta, Barcos, and Dentos. And right away, you're, you're put into this setting. And I thought one of the strongest suits was just how immersive this was right away. Like I was kind of skimming through to refresh myself on some of the details. And I was amazed by how few pages pass into the story, but how immersive the, the setting of the Order House is right away and how you immediately understand what the Order is all about. Yeah, I think it's a really familiar magic school type vibe it's not a magic school they actually hunt magic people but that that's the vibe i got it it was very familiar to me even i thought nortath was going to be set up as a malfoy type character you know being antagonistic and not uh not an ally to valen but i really like that the relationship between the brothers like i said the brothers are more present in my mind i remember what they feel how they are responding to things more than a lot of the other characters and i think that that does start with this magic school type thing we've got amazing that you said norto was just like malfoy because that's how i picture him as well <laughs> i think that's somewhat intentional that you know the author wants wants us to be a little jaded by his presence and the way that he interacts with Valen, but I think he redeems himself fairly easily in, uh, in the through the length of the book. And so the, the magic school that we're at is not a school. We're going to be at through the entirety of the setting and action moves pretty quickly through some of Valen and the crew's formative years. Part of the order house is they go on these different tests. So they go to the test of the run, they call it where they basically just have to make it back to the house safely and, and brave the outside world. And in that test, we start to get uh, a sense of mystery and, and some other plot points set up. Valen sees this mysterious wolf in the distance that helps him, and he, he doesn't really know what to make of this. There are some assassins in the forest that are trying to kill him, and he learns that he is targeted as the, as the son of the battle lord. And Norta also has a bit of a backstory as the son of, I think, the king's minister. So even though the magic school, the, the Six Order school, is separated from the world, they can't do it entirely. And Valen especially has to deal with both aspects and kind of uh, has to decide where where he wants to fall in the world. Like, what role does he want to take in life? And he has some choices later on 
as well uh, that some of the other boys don't. Since you want us to talk about uh, the hero's journey, I think that the trial of the run where Valen meets the assassins is probably the call to adventure. It's It sets him apart from the other brothers in the order house as someone important and someone who is potentially a target uh, and could have influence in the future. Yeah, and I think he has a call to adventure. That, well, he has a call that he refuses fairly strongly in that there's a point in his early years within the order where his father asks to have him back and the king grants it, but it's ultimately up to Valen and Valen ultimately refuses it, ending up going down the path that we've talked about. And it would be a bit of a temptress, I would say, but from the, from the point of view, it, it, it takes place far too early in the story to be extremely significant to who he is as a character. But I, th- I think it is a temptation for him, at least at first. So it does set up this continuing inner conflict that he has where he, at his core, is someone who wants to be loved. And several times he kind of reflects back on his mother and a reflection into kind of the other side that he briefly has of her that he's that he's uncertain about. And I think just this relationship, not a relationship with his father, but this connection with his father and with his mother who has died um, when he was younger are, are very defining aspects uh, of him. How do you feel about how the author handled his dad in this story? Because we really, we see the briefest of moments of his interaction with Valen at the very beginning of the story. And then everything else that we get about him is his reputation or the very few memories that Valen has of him. And I think his the character was very interesting, but everything we got of him was all like secondary sources. And so I didn't know if anyone else like myself thought that it would have been interesting to see that character on a like first-hand basis. He he's a very classic absent father in my mind. He's just he's not there, but his reputation is still present. At one point they talk about Valen's legend and I think this is like right after he's left the order house, he's done basically one task or one thing that he might be famous for, but they talk about Valen's legend and how impressive he is and how everyone wants to be on his be in his army his group and i think that that is a carryover of his father i would have probably liked more but i think having valen on his own makes it a little bit more interesting than have him work even more in the shadow of his father than he already was i mean we see the by the end of the book we see his punishment being directly related to his relationship to his father where he's manipulated into going off on this pointless war in order to protect his father, just really had this duty that he has. He, he just can't allow Janice, the king, to to actually kill him. Or are you talking about the duel because of his father's his father's attack? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so you're talking about just the fact that he has to go and actually fight this duel and the Mel- Meldenians. I'm, I'm gonna yeah, guess that's on. Right. The idea is, well, they're just going to kill him anyway because they're mad that his father, as Battle Lord, burned their city back in the day. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because you see this whole book, him trying to get out of his father's shadow and succeeding in so many ways, but ultimately, you know, quote unquote, being doomed by who he is by birth. Another comparison that comes to mind, don't know if it's the greatest one, but I'm throwing it out there, is maybe like a Robert Baratheon for his father, even down to the uh, fact that he burned this island nation back in the day and by the time you see 
King Robert at the beginning of A Song of Ice and Fire. He's kind of this washed up fat king that frankly just kind of stinks. And by the time we actually see Valen's father, he has become part of this denier uh, group and really doesn't have any of the clout that we think that he probably had as Battle Lord back in his heyday. I don't like that comparison of being a denier to being washed up because the deniers seem to have more importance and more legitimacy than they might at first appear to have. But beyond that, I, I definitely see that comparison. And this is a, a hair of outside knowledge, but it's nothing that goes against any amount of spoiling. His dad is fairly washed up, and I think the author kind of done him dirty <laughs> by the end of the series as a whole and plays, you know, little importance. But I think Valen moves enough out of his, like it's his legend and not his father's legend by the time the story's done. I did want to ask you guys, has, have either of you guys read The Left Hand of God by Paul Hoffman? I have not. All right. The only reason I ask is because there's a very similar situation in which there is a religious sect of like warrior priests and warrior monks who raise children in a in a nearly identical way. And the titular character is is very similar to Valen in that he's a bit of a Mary Sue. But it's funny because his trials that he goes through as an individual are mirror this very well. And I wonder if that's mainly because we as readers kind of expect them to, you know, we expect Valen to undergo these trials of who he is from the, his adopted family and from his traditional family. I guess I'll have to mark that on, add that to my ever growing uh, to read. Yeah, that's, list. that's always the struggle. <laughs> so next up for Valen is another test. This is the test of the wild. And this is maybe another uh, call to adventure where he is starting to learn even more about the outside world. This is probably our first real insight into the Denier sect and the dark, which is what they call the magic of the world. And the church and the nation, are they're, they're very much against this idea of using the dark. If you use the dark, that is forbidden. They talk about it as reaching into the other side. And there was once a seventh order of dark users, as legend goes, and is no longer because they've been killed off, or so we think. And so he meets a girl named Sela, who is a denier, a user of the dark. And he actually saves her from the Fourth Order. The Fourth Order is basically the Red Aja, if you're a Wheel of Time fan. Uh, they, yeah. they are fanatical and would very much like to uh, eliminate these people. And then the other thing to mention here is that Valen starts to get his stuff. And the first cool thing that he gets is he gets a Valerian slave hound, which is basically an awesome dog that is totally loyal to him over anything else and is incredibly fierce, but also pretty awesome to just have as a pet as well. So like the ultimate dog companion. Yeah, I really like Scratch. He's he's fun. He stays relevant, which is nice. Sometimes pets like this can fall to the wayside, but Scratch stays around until the very end of the actual tale. He's not in the framing device, unfortunately, but it's nice that when uh, things stay. Is is the fact that he's a bloodthirsty killer take away from his adorableness and like endearment as a as the pet of the main character? Uh, in no way. That's just Valen's <laughs> character, and all of his pets actually do this. His horse that he gets a little bit beyond this spit also has a temper, also is aggressive, but Valen can handle them very well, and I think that just shows some of his character. He is 
aggressive when he needs to be, but he is fiercely loyal and protective of his friends. Yeah, do you guys think, and I think this is about the time that it happens in the book, the leadership qualities that Valen ends up showing by the end of the tale are starting to be thrust upon him at the beginning in these trials by the masters of his order telling him that he needs to kind of take his his group of friends into task and really be responsible for them. Do you guys think this takes away anything because it's something that they're forcing him to do and not something that he does inherently? I saw that as a very natural growth and grooming him for leadership. It's done in a way that Valen still has to do all the tasks. They just are letting him know, like, we expect you to be the leader. We expect you to ensure that everyone is getting fed or everyone is learning these skills. But they let him learn how to do it and how to work with the group all on his own. And one of the better moments where that happens is kind of coming up. I'll skip ahead past the test of knowledge where he meets with the aspects and kind of has some reflections on his mother. Can I just say one thing? These are teenagers who are supposed to have insight on themselves. Every single one of them should fail this test of knowledge. That is one of the most unrealistic <laughs> things to me. But... That's interesting. I didn't really think about that when I was reading it. I thought that it was more of a judge of sincerity than it was of insight. Well, I can see both points. I think that there was quite a bit of delving into the sincerity of these potential members of the order. But like you're saying, it's very much unrealistic to expect teenagers to to be able to come to the table with all this knowledge. But that's something that you could probably point at most fantasy books and other adaptations and saying like, this 16-year-old kid was really the one who saved the day here? I I don't buy it. That's very fair. So skipping past the the test of knowledge there, since we already kind of talked about his relationship with his mother or his lack of relationship, going into some of Valen's leadership qualities. So the first, I would say what the biggest, the first and biggest time, maybe there's some other times, but the one that really struck a chord for me is when they go to the Summertide Fair and Norta's father, the minister to the king, is killed because he's hung publicly, he's executed due to some some misdealings. That's what we understand at the time. And it's really nicely done when they realize how this is happening because Norta is kept back from going, right? Because the uh, the masters at the order house know this is happening, but he gets out and he's going after them and the boys have to band together to prevent Norta from doing anything he's going to regret. But at the same time, they also totally feel for him because look, his father is being killed here. So Valen has to kind of battle all these conflicting emotions but he's able to to do so in a way that protects his brother at the expense of his brother because norta was dialed into getting some vengeance here and valen prevented that from happening saving his life in the process this was a great example of valen's leadership i think you're absolutely right i had two thoughts on this this is the first time that we see the king janice isn't the greatest thing ever. He's not a gift from the gods to the people. He is manipulative and scheming. So that was a good clarification to have. And it sets up Valen's dealing with with him later as a little more sinister. And the other thing, Valen only really works with his small group of brothers, this like group of five or six. And I wanted more interaction with the entire Sixth House. It doesn't seem to be building a huge camaraderie 
it just seems to be building this small group that are going to function well together, but won't really function with the rest of the house. I think the discipline that they're being taught as a group is is somewhat outside the purview of the story and gets glossed over because the the story wants you to focus on that brotherhood, but it's you know made fairly apparent that at the end of their training they're going to be for the most part split up and sent across the realms to to different duties most likely. But then they aren't. But then they aren't, yes. <laughs> but that was I think what is typical, but we're looking at a fairly stereotypical group for the point purpose of the story. But I guess maybe they could have been, but I, I think that's a fair point. Like, why was Terry not more friendly with uh, kids in the older years or younger years of Hogwarts, right? Kind of same idea. Yeah, exactly. We understand that it's mostly because they have classes together and the story focuses on them, but some interaction between the rest of the groups would have been nice. Like, Harry interacts with people from Hufflepuff in different classes, and he interacts with the Weasleys, at least, in the grades above him, and Cedric, but I didn't see any of that here. You don't like it when he beats up the other groups of kids to get at the uh, flag in the middle of the of the field? <laughs> there was a lot of interaction. There was there, yes. Yeah, that almost seemed like we were we were swapping gears over to Red Rising or something with, with the test of the melee, right? And that's another time where Valen was put in place as the leader of the group and just brutally bashes their way through to to win the test is it a good thing about valen that he sees that the test is not necessarily about the strategy it's just about you know beating each other up or is it would we have liked as readers to have for him to found a trick around it and come out and, and have won the day through guile i think valen understands that the traditions of the sixth house are antiquated and not perfect but he just battles through them so I'm okay with what he did. It would have been interesting for him to be a little more wily and sneak around the rules, but I'm okay with him sticking in the traditions of the house at this point, just because it's the only thing he knows, and he has chosen the house over everything, so there's no reason for him to go around the traditions. I would say this gets at how Valen approaches problems, larger problems, later in the book as well, because when Janice sends him on these missions, even though he understands that maybe they are not the greatest things he should be doing, he is unable to get away from the ultimate goal, but he accomplishes the goal in kind of a sneaky way that maybe puts less blood on his hands and 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 saves lives. But at the end of the day, he still follows through with the maybe less than desirable framing of what of what's going on. So going forward from here, we meet a few minor characters. We meet Frentis, who is going to be much more important later on. We meet Alornis, who is his sister, his half-sister. Um, and that kind of gets back at his father's relationship. And then we already kind of touched on that. And then we finally meet Sharon, who you guys talked about. One of my favorites from the series. Uh, really good female uh, love interest, but also very good character in her own right. And so... Moving on to kind of the, the Sharon plotline for now. So the way that he meets her is they have this tradition of swapping orders for a little bit, a little bit of field trip onto the new, different orders, learn more about the realm, etc. And as the fifth order is the house of healing, it's where his mother came through. So that's why he chose to go there. And Sharon is kind of like basically the Valen of the fifth order. She's the rising star that a lot of people have pinned their hopes on. She is very kind and good-hearted, and Valen values that a lot in her. 
And she values those things in Valen, but is turned off of some of Valen's more violent tendencies. And that's going to be part of their relationship going forward. During his time at the Order House, there is this assassination attempt that happens against all of the different aspects, the leaders of the different orders. And Valen is able to thwart the assassination attempt that happens in his order. Other orders are not quite as lucky, but this is a really big event. And, and again, we're kind of like getting more and more senses of this ongoing conflict outside of just the smaller squabbles of the order house. I see this assassination attempt as either a crossing of the threshold or belly of the whale, because probably more crossing the threshold, because again, this thrusts Valen into a world that he's not really sure of. There's danger present in the assassination attempt on him. And it, it continues us down this mystery where Valen is important, but there's also something going on in the background affecting the, all of the order houses. And I thought it was fairly obvious. I think here's the line where they introduced this seventh house. Once there were seven, uh, I'm not sure if that was here no, or that a was little here. later. That, the, the assassin says it. It is here where they, yeah, the assassin says that line right as they're being killed, right as they succumb to the poison. So I'm just, I was a little surprised that Valen didn't instantly recognize that as, oh, seven orders, clearly. I mean, it's not until really his rescue of uh, Fenris later in the book that it becomes concrete. I mean, he shows enough interest in it and he asks a bunch of people and they just tell him to, to stop worrying about it and do his job. And to be fair to him, he had just thwarted this assassination attempt very seriously wounded in the process, maybe didn't have the greatest recollection of what was going on. He was distracted by Sharon, who's very beautiful. So maybe lots of reasons why he didn't put it together right away. <laughs> Getting back to Sharon, I really enjoy that relationship there. I think it's authentically built, one of the better ones in the book. It kind of builds naturally to me. They start out and like a little antagonistic, and then they clearly grow interested later and finally come together oh, pretty close to the end. But I, I think it builds in a natural way. We don't see entirely what happens, but that's just part of how Ryan wrote the book and how the plot flows. I really, I don't know if liked is the right word. I appreciated how closely their relationship mirrored that of his own parents. Yeah, that's a really good point both from those respective houses, obviously a pretty big power couple, both very capable. And now that we talk about this, I realize there really are a lot of kind of subtle things that are being done in the book that, that really kind of make it stand out. Yeah, and I actually really appreciate how the author, it's not just the assassination attempt at the place that he's at, that, that Valen is at. It's not just at the aspect of the Fifth Order. Things are happening outside of the view of our main character that have effects on the main character. And I, I, I appreciate that because oftentimes it can be hard. Like we've been using Harry a lot. It seems like everything that happens in Hogwarts happens while Harry's there and he's looking at it. There's not as much that happens. Oh, to other characters. And so I, I do like that other people are success successful and, and not successful in the endeavors and stopping assassinations in other places, including one of his brothers. I don't remember which one offhand. I think there were a few brothers who were kind of dozing during one of the assassination attempts and got severe reprimands afterwards. <laughs> uh, Canis was one who thwarted an attempt on yeah. uh, the fourth house, I think. I, I don't remember exactly which house. Fourth seems right for Canis, yeah. So next uh, kind of big event that happens is we go back to our buddy Frentis, who 
was a street urchin that they ran into and ended up vouching for him to come into the sixth order. And Frentis has kind of gone, you know, followed their steps in a, in a lesser year of the, of the sixth order house. And during his test of the wild, he is taken. And so they go on this adventure to rescue him. They track him down to this sorcerer type guy that they call one eye. And this is the introduction of another serious plot point. Uh, This is where we start to get the sense of like this possession thing that's going on with some of the antagonists of the story. They call it the one who waits. And what do you guys think of of this enemy? So I thought one eye was rather disappointing. He died fairly fast. They were able to find him basically instantly. They just went like to one house and through a tunnel and boom, they were there. Um, I guess Valen is using his blood song, which is magically doing this for him. But one eye died rather fast. But the one who waits, I think, is great. He's ominous. It's like ever present throughout the story all of the antagonists valen meets from now on are going to have some aspect of the one who waits around them and i really liked that the build-up to the one who waits was great i disagree with you alex on that i i think the one i completely served his purpose and i had no problem with the speed at which he was dispatched because he's simply an entry point to this greater villain and so i had no problem with him getting dealt with fairly quickly. Yeah, I guess when I was reading it initially, I thought that one I was going to be the bigger bad, but looking back, I was just read from my notes like, oh, when I was disappointing, but looking back and realizing that the one who waits was behind him, I think makes it a little bit more impactful. That's true though. They did just like jump through the fire and realize, oh, it's not real fire and split him open. And that was the end of him. I did neglect to mention that Valen had this thing called the blood song, the name of the book. And this is a use of the dark, pretty rare use of the dark that Valen's kind of discovering within himself. That is essentially like a compass of sorts that tells him the direction that he needs to go to. And there are times where he deviates from it and pays the price. So this is interesting because you have this kind of continually uh, ramp up of the conflict between the dark and and the and I guess the the established um, nation that is very much antagonistic of this. And Valen is kind of the hero of that group, but at the same time, he's using the dark himself. Something that he's told to keep in wraps by Master Solus, who he discusses it with a little bit earlier in the tale, which makes you kind of wonder as a reader, is this out of, you know, a bond with Solus and Valen? Is it out of a general fear of the unknown? Is there something greater going on? So I kind of appreciated the the one person he, he tries to tell doesn't immediately rat him out or try to use him or anything. He just kind of says, don't talk about it. Uh, another thing that comes up with the use of the blood song is this wolf. And I, I am interested in the wolf, like what it is, what it's doing. Uh, I never got a satisfying answer. You and everyone else, Alex. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, we're going to we're gonna try to talk about some of these things without spoiling any more of the future books. But there are plot points from the book that are brought up and kind of hinted at and promised for more that really fall flat by the end of the series. So I think that is the main reason why Blood Song is not as well known because the first entry, fantastic. I think we all really enjoyed this one, but Tower Lord and then Queen of Fire. Oof, that one was rough. And I think primarily without, this isn't even a spoiler plot point. It's that the books deviate more and more from Valen. 
if you really think right. about it. Like the rest of the, he starts to have to share such an amount of spotlight with such a growing cast of characters that I think it can, the, it tends tends to lose its way. Right. There there are many reasons why the the follow-ups were disappointing. We probably need future podcasts for those and we don't want to do too many spoilers into that but yeah like you say they do bring in more point of view characters and the awesomeness that is Valen all sorna is kind of diluted i will say that ryan has now started this new couple books the wolf's call and the black song that i mentioned at the beginning and the fourth book if you will uh, the wolf's call really kind of goes back to a lot of things that made the first book awesome and distance it, it distances itself from some of the things that made the series a bit of a whimper as it went out. So I really liked The Wolf's Call, and I'm excited for The Black Song. Cool. I'm going to look forward to reading that then. Did you guys like how, speaking of One Eye, did you like how the bad guy in this little you know interlude was directly related to, I want to say it's Fenris, Frentris? Frent- Frentis? Frentis. Because I... Rather than introducing someone wholly unrelated to kind of the buildup, I think it was tangentially related enough that it felt genuine rather than just some underlord guy who we'd never even heard of before having these powers. That's kind of why I expected more of One-Eye because he had been mentioned before and we already knew that he was villainous or at least antagonistic to Valen and Frentress. Frentis. I'm so bad at pronunciations. I'm sorry. Every time I want to see it, I just want to say Fenrir. So next thing that happens, we're pretty much a graduation time from the Six Order House. So the final test is the test of the sword, where they have to go into an arena and fight against condemned criminals. The criminals are told if they win the fight, then they get to go free. So <laughs> pretty brutal system here of, uh, of execution of criminals, but also at least you know giving these guys a chance. I think this is something you definitely see in A Song of Ice and Fire. And uh, as we'd expect, you know, Valen is successful in fighting these guys, but he's really disturbed over the uh, the killings he had to do, especially with one of the guys who seems to have been an innocent man. And we get to and we learn that there is some connection with the deniers here. Eventually, this leads to the first big plot point that happens outside of the school, where he goes, meets with Janice, says, "Hey, I want to help this guy's widow." that I killed. And in order to do that, Janice makes a deal with him. He's very, he's a very shrewd King. And Janice says, okay, you know, I'll, I'll do this, but you need to do something for me. I need to get rid of this Lyndon Al Hestian guy. Who's kind of this rising star who I don't really want to gather too much clout. I don't really want to learn my daughter, the princess getting too involved with him. So this is the next uh, kind of thing that happens. And this is his first mission outside of the house. So were you guys surprised at all? Like that we're done with the order house halfway through the book. Some of these times with these magic schools, you think, okay, this is the setting we're going to be at. And, and it's really established, but I guess I was fine with, with uh, the action going really quickly. Yeah, I was okay with it. And this was the point I was going to bring up as the belly of the whale. Valen is leaving what has been his home for uh, six, seven years now. And he's also entering into a deal with King Janus. So, I appreciate that we're we're moving beyond and we spent a lot of time getting to know Valen and his cast of brothers, but now we're ready to go into the bigger world. I also had no problem leaving behind the Order House. I was more upset at Valen's decision to seek, I guess I want to say reparations for this dead man's family, mainly because 
it wasn't his fault. Like he he's just as much a victim of this test of swords as the guy who dies and who he makes the deal with Janice is for the, the widow and the family. I mean, he could have died from that just as easily as, as the other guy could have. I was a little upset that that was the point that they used to pull him out into the world. And it says a little bit about his character and his, like his sense of right and wrong, but I don't know if I necessarily liked his, I'll do whatever I can to fix it. This is the side he's getting from his mother. This is more of his tender side. And this is the first time he's killed anyone innocent and he really struggles with this. But it was frustrating that he would agree to do this further treachery in order to make reparations for what wasn't his fault initially. That doesn't seem to add up. Yeah. I think that Valen, he's still young, so he made that agreement in haste. But I really like that he didn't kill the Alheshton, this friend that he comes to have. He plans it out. He's all prepared. And then his conscience basically catches up to him and he refuses to kill him, even though Lyndon does end up dying through no fault of Valens. I appreciate that he didn't do that. Stop me if I'm wrong, either of you, but I'm pretty sure it's not his conscience that stopped him from, from killing Alheshton. It was the reappearance of the mythical wolf. You're, you're very right. I'm going to consider that his conscience because why, why not? <laughs> <laughs> the Blood Song is also telling him, like, not to do this but he's ready to deny it because he's made a deal and he's his word is is king and everything i mean yes he he obviously doesn't do it in the end but i think it's more if he's like shocked back to reality by the presence of this wolf that he never really sees than it is a methodical decision to not do it so one other thing that kind of happens during these events and and like you were saying alex he goes and uh they, they hunt these cumberland rebels black arrow we mentioned and this is the campaign to to kill him. They think they do so. And as a part of it, um, interspersed here, Valen has this weird kind of time travel vision thing happening with this member of the Siorta Sil, which is one of the more uh, native peoples of the country. And he meets with this person named Nurses Sil Nin and he gets kind of more of the blood song explained to him. And honestly, not my favorite part because of how vague it is and the lack of real concrete like reasons why we're doing this i didn't still after this care this flashback scene or time travel scene happened know what the blood song was not until valen meets the sculptor did i really understand what the blood song was so i don't know if this adds anything we already as readers know that valen needs to learn more about the blood song it's clearly you know something that is affecting him influencing him it has ramifications for the wider world. This wolf keeps showing up, which I don't know why I keep mentioning that. I just wanted more out <laughs> of the wolf, I guess. So I don't know. I don't think this scene was necessary, and it didn't bring a lot more to the book. I Doesn't it give him his his other name, one of his first other names? Yeah, it's like Barak Alshur, something like that. Yeah, the Raven Shadow, which I think is the, also the name of the series. So at least it gave us that, Alex. Right. Uh, good point. <laughs> It, I mean, but like, what's the point of that, right? It, I guess one thing it does do is it expands the world a little bit. And these people, uh, these sort of still are going to be more important in future books. But it's all happening so quickly. I don't know. I didn't, not one of my favorite, one of, one of my lesser moments of the book. I liked that of, of all the scenes, you know, the other, the only other magic we've seen in any significant sense is the blood song existing within Valen and then the magic of one eye. Uh, and the blood song 
seems more instinctual and, and not something that he really has any control or harness over. Whereas one eye's magic seemed very intentional and taken by force and all that. So I was actually really happy to see a new character who was using the dark, using this magic in a way that was different than the two. It, it wasn't just instinctual and it wasn't evil. It was just a good thing or, you know, something that somebody had control over it expanded the magic enough for me that I that I liked that moment. So next events that happen here is we go into a little bit more of an escalation of the war against Cumbriel, which is one of the neighboring fiefs, because we found some letters, or we think we found some letters on the body of Black Arrow. In fact, this is one eye kind of pulling the, or not one eye, but this is the one who waits kind of pulling the strings behind the scene. We don't get that till the very end of the book. But this war is all based around this uh, this usurper, Hentus Mustor, who is, I believe, the brother of the rightful Fife Lord or, or Fief Lord. Yes, and yeah. Valen and co. have to go and put him down. And so they train this kind of army of rejects from the prisons. They empty the prisons, say, hey, we're going to train these guys, the wolf runners. I thought that was kind of a, a fun moment where Valen's able to really hammer these, these uh, group of ne'er-do-wells into somewhat of a capable fighting unit. And by the end, they're like the super elite group. And then this conflict with Hentus Mustor, who is also possessed by the one who waits, or at least we don't, maybe don't, we don't get that explicitly, but it seems very suspicious. They climb up this cool secret keep where they find him kind of a cool setting. He has Sharon captive. So we have to stop him now because, you know, you can't mess with Sharon. And, and right as uh, he's about to surrender and we're about to figure out the situation, Barkus, one of Valen's brothers, goes in and, and kills him, throws an axe at him. And that's going to be, again, something important later on when we realize that Barkus was also possessed by one eye and didn't want uh, you know the secrets getting out. So what do you guys think of, of this scene? This is probably you know where Valen really starts to come into his own, commanding this group off on his own, completely in charge. And, and he does really well. I liked this scene like the, it was cool when they were breaking into the castle and I guess the extra power of Sharon being captured makes it a better scene like I, I had investment in the story when it was just we need to defeat the upser it's like uh, I don't know I don't really care about the upser what did he do wrong usurper yes you're right usurper but when there's more at stake I I think that really helped make this a more impactful scene to add to that, and literally just this moment that I would go, when you said it, oh, Barkus killing him is actually a big deal because of what we know about Barkus later. So, yeah, I think hindsight adds a little to that interaction. It It's nice because while this is not a mystery book in any way, shape or form, Valen has a mystery before him that he is slowly starting to piece together as he gets bits and pieces. And I think while we aren't as the readers are invested in that as much, it's, it's a very big deal in his life. And I kind of like that he's getting bits and pieces for it. Yeah. We were actually talking on our phantology discord a little bit about fantasy stories and how they relate to mystery stories. And I think at the heart of every good fantasy story, maybe not every fantasy story, but a lot of the stories that I enjoy is a good mystery where the reader is trying to unravel all these different hints and pieces. And, and that makes it fun. And and for that's another reason why, I was kind of into this book. It keeps you engaged on another level. So after this, uh, Norta 
our our Malfoy brother, right? Who's now not Malfoy anymore. Now he's now now he's pretty competent and, and a good uh, loyal friend. But he uh, he attacks the one of the battle lords, and the battle lord is unlawfully executing deniers. But Norte can't handle this and goes off on the run. Balin has to track him down to put him down because he's disobeyed the the order of the battle lord and the authority of the king. This really harkens back to the scene of the Summertide Fair where Balin has to do the same thing and, and prevent Norta from seeking justice. And this leads into this kind of secret city of dark users. And there are some interesting expansions of the world. You learn more about the magic, but it's not super related to the actual plot of this book, I would say. This is another um, scene that's a little out there, but uh, does have, I, I would like, I like this one more than the whole thing with the uh, Siorda Sil vision. Yeah, I think that this, hints to a greater world beyond this and it really makes me more interested in the magic learning that all of these magic abilities are uh related and that valen can develop his more is good and because norta is there i i care about it more because i've followed norta throughout you know the whole uh six order training and the relationship that he and valen have is it feels more real so when he leaves, it's impactful. And him choosing to go with, what's this girl's name? Oh, back with Sela? Sela, yeah. So Norta choosing to go with Sela is nice. Like It brings together two characters that were interesting and I cared a little bit about and sets up something for me to look forward to in the next books if I'm going to read them. Definitely sets up more in the next books. Yeah, I think it it's a good juxtaposition for Valen. Like Norta is very similar in a lot of ways, but when is when he's faced with a choice, he tends to make a different choice than Valen makes, which I think just goes to emphasize the ones that Valen does choose to, to follow. So now after this is this happens, the next major thing is the real start to the conflict that we get hinted at from the very beginning of the book, the war with Alperia. And this is a war that really springs out of Janice's greed and desire to expand his territory and get this blue stone, which is basically a diamond in their world. So right as the war happens, uh, Janice gets Valen on board by threatening his father, which we kind of referenced to earlier. And Valen says, okay, fine, I'm going to do another instance where, again, Valen gets drawn into the less than noble machinations of the king because he's trying to help another innocent. And at the very beginning of the war, there's kind of this quick skirmish. Valen kills this guy with this nice white horse and shining armor that everyone kind of looks to as their leader. And Valen just kills him kind of offhand. Like he's not a very good warrior and he's easily dispatched by a train member of the Sixth Order. But this is going to be a huge thing for these guys in Alperia because this was the Hope is the name, is the title. Really like that title basically the future emperor. And after this, Valen earns the title of the Hope Killer, another cool title. And the entire continent hates his guts so bad and really uh, kind of escalates the war because of this quick little uh, one-off death. It's kind of unique in the way that it did this. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Yes, same. My the favorite book, thing. He, he's the hope killer. He's the he's the killer of everything that's good in the world. And then he's just having a battle, and it's just oh, I killed this guy who wasn't very good. And yeah, I just you're, you're waiting for this like it. single combat or something. 
<laughs> oh yeah, like or he's an assassin or something, and it's just an offhand killing of a guy who wasn't particularly good at at being a fighter. Yes, I I think this is my favorite like point. We we had so much build up to the Hope Killer, and expectations are not met uh, in one sense, but in another better sense, just blown out of the water. Yeah, this is another kind of Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire-ish feel, where if there's a character who's incompetent, they are not going to get through the story riding on the coattails of their nobility or whatever. They're probably going to get offed, and that's what happens to the Hope. And it sets Valen up in such a way that his interactions for the rest of the book are skewed by it, which I really liked. Like, it really showed consequences to something that he didn't even... You know, it's not it's not an action that he took and went, oh, I'm going to kill their emperor. But yet it's one of his legacies and it and it affects the rest of the book, which I appreciated. And then going into the next battles that happen as part of this war, a lot of them are based on the fact that these guys really want to kill the hope killer. And here is Valen with his army and they want to kill him and they make some bad decisions because of that. Eventually, they take these two cities, Untush and Linesh, these are more like coastal cities, and they get kind of stalled here because they definitely don't have enough manpower to actually conquer Alperia, which is like leagues and leagues away. And so they're kind of stuck, and the, the big army of the Alperians is coming on, and it's like this awkward situation that Valen has a pretty hard time. Like it's a it's a way bad situation for him. He's got to manage these occupied cities while he's the most hated man on the continent, while the big armies come on, while they're not getting enough support from their home base. And this is tricky. And then to add to it, there is a plague that breaks out in the city that he is in. So as you guys are reading this, like, what are you expecting to have happen here? Because it seems like it's real bleak. Well, I'm expecting Valen to fail miserably because we know that he does. And I think that, setting all this up like just piling on more and more issues was a really good a good plot ryan did a really good job with this valen is a great leader a great thinker so he's gonna have to have a lot set against him for him to fail and ryan did a really good job of doing that i was not the biggest fan of the reuse of the red hand like we've had the red hand hinted at and that's what makes janice you know the mythical leader that he is in many ways, he survived the red hand and forged the unified realm from its ashes. But I was a little upset that it was used as a device here when I felt like there was so much else to challenge Valen. And it, it seemed to me mainly a reason to get Shirin to the city for the romantic plot line. And so I felt (laughs) improper use of, of such a devastating plague. I can see that. The only other thing it does is it kind of sets up Valen as a bit of a savior, even though he's off in this other continent, having killed the hope he's able to save this city from total devastation. So that kind of cements his character a little bit more. But I was okay with Sharon coming back because I'm a total sucker for these fantasy romances and Sharon and Valen are one of the better ones in my opinion, or at least in my memory. So uh, I, I'm a I'm a total softy for these things, and if Sharon's going to come in and save the day, that's fine with me. That's super interesting that you say that because I found their really like dynamic interesting and playful, and like it had some depth to it. But the amount of time that they actually spend with each other is extremely insignificant 
compared to the you know the length of the, of the book. We see a couple weeks when he's at the Fifth Order house. We see a couple weeks here, a couple weeks there. So I really don't think I think the author does a good job of developing that dynamic in a very short time. But I found it like I wish they would have had more time together to kind of see what happened next. So do I. And this is one of my main issues with the trilogy going forward. That's all I'll say. <laughs> so so to kind of uh, get through some closing events here, we know this isn't going to work out well with the uh, the war in Alperia. They're coming on in force. Dentos and Valen go off to do this mission to destroy their siege engines. And Dentos is killed. So uh, this is one of Valen's closest friends. And and uh, he's killed in a battle. There's like, a I think, a sandstorm that comes up that they're riding through. And he's killed by some archers on horseback that are chasing after them. And uh, and so that's emotional. We're, we're kind of losing brothers here a little bit because Frentis is taken, kind of means unknown, when one of the other cities that they're holding gets taken. Uh, Norta is off. I mean, we still have Canis, but he's really the last one because at the very end, uh, you know, Barkus is killed as well. So um, a lot of the groundwork that was laid at the beginning of the book has been kind of undone. And then at the very end, we see Valen in chains and uh, it really got not that much to look forward to. I think the only thing that we didn't really touch on was Valen being like, tutored by the sculptor. And I really appreciated that where Valen learns the magic a little more. That I think gave the best explanation of what the Blood Song is, how it's a guide. And in many senses, it can be used you know, for direction or in a fight and to read people. So I, I appreciated that. And like I said, we know it's a tragedy, so I have no problem with Valen ending up in chains being uh, taken away. I think the most important part of that particular climax of the war is the reveal of Barkus and, and having been, you know, all along this compatriot and this stalwart, well, a uh, friend of Valen having really been a spy for this one who waits. It was devastating. Like when he came out of the water, I was so happy. I'm like, Barkus is here. He couldn't leave his friend to die. He's come back and he's going to be with him. And then all of a sudden it's like, I know who you are. And ah oh man, I was I was not happy. This is another moment of unreliable narration because this is not something that he shares with uh, Verniers. He he very much keeps this away. But we do, uh, like you were saying as well, uh, we we get more explanation into the blood song and also the one who waits entity itself through the Amlin stonemason through his tale that he tells about this powerful woman. Um, in the past that could use this magic. And so we've got enough hints where we know that there is this like real sinister force in the beyond. And we've seen it possess different people. Barkus at the end is, I think, a nice way to end it. There's this tale of the witch's bastard who Barkus confirms that he has been possessed by. We don't get a great explanation for it, which is okay. First book, we're kind of setting things up. And as far as the first book, I thought I thought it was really well done. Didn't love how it ended up in the trilogy, but I guess we don't want to do too many spoilers into that. What did we think about his betrayal of Sharon, since you guys liked their little dynamic so much? I didn't see it much as a betrayal, more just I mean, he, he called her. it a betrayal. He even, I think one of the quotes in the book is like, the betrayal is the worst sin or something. He's pretty hard on himself. It, exactly like Stephen said. I think Valen is being hard on himself, too hard on himself, in fact. Uh, I didn't see this as a betrayal. 
it's protection, but Valen is just so self-deprecating that he, he sees it as a betrayal. So I was okay with it. Um, I thought it was a good way to protect Sharon because ultimately if he doesn't do this, what is her fate? It's probably not looking great, especially as the lover of the hope killer. Yeah, she's not going to do very well in Alperia. But I thought it had so much setup for the rest of the trilogy and I was let down. So as we get to the very end of the book, the very last thing that happens in Valen's narrative, at least in, in our timeline, present day is this duel with the shield that's been built up. But as the reader, once you get to this point in the narrative, you know Valen's going to win. There's no way he's going to let this shield do, no matter how cool he is. Uh, Valen's not going to be defeated, especially when he talks about how he's just been singing his blood song in the, for the past five years. And pretty similar to how he took down the hope, he's easily able to dispatch the shield. I believe he refuses to actually kill him and then is able to sail away off into the sunset. And who knows where the story is going to go from here. And I thought this was a great ending to the book. It wrapped up enough where you're excited for more reveals in the future. Um, we got some hope for Valen, but we don't know exactly where it's going. So the first book taken on its own, I thought was pretty strong beginning to end. I just had so much hype going into this fight when Valen is asked, like, what is there to do in a cell for five years? And he says, sing. Like, yes. And the fight with the shield is uh, great for its brevity. It It is exactly what I needed. Valen is obviously a better fighter, and I, I love that. And I agree, this is a good end to the the story that Ryan has built. I wanted the fight to be just a little more climactic. Like, it was cool seeing the level of Valen's, you know, blood song and his martial skill. In my mind, I would have liked the one who was opposing him, whether it be through powers of the dark or through the one who waits or what have you, had some amount of surprising ability. Because the fight with Barkus to me, seemed more climactic in its in the way that it was actually portrayed than the one with the shield. I, I, I appreciated why he did it, but I, I just wish he would have done more. And the last point I'm going to bring up for the hero's journey, Valen winning this fight is definitely a freedom to live. He's, you know, released from jail. He's now able to go sail away and live his life how he wants. From my point of view, as not having read the other books, he is free from a lot of the commitments that he had and a lot of the, things that were tying him down and not letting him live the way that he might have wanted to. So that is a wrap for Bloodsong. Before we sign off here, our, our our final closing segment is called Worst of the Best. We are each going to briefly talk about one of our favorite moments or parts of the book, whatever it be. But one reason why that was maybe not quite as awesome as it could have been. So I, I guess people nowadays really like being critical, Twitter culture perhaps, and so we're going to give that to you. So do you guys have a worst of the best candidate? I, I have one, which is kind of a combination of two things. So I love the relationship between Valen and his brothers and how that develops. Um, I thought that they were all fairly unique and especially Canis and Frentis were uh, great characters. And I loved the looming of the one who waits and that greater evil. but. I thought the worst thing was making Barkus this one who waits. I think making either Canis or Frentis the one who waits would have been more impactful because it would have changed that relationship that we saw earlier. Like 
Canis's knowledge would have been more sinister and the loyalty that Frentis had would have been seen in a different light. He would have been sticking around Valen not because he was loyal, but because he was hunting him. So that fell a little flat for me. I didn't have as much a relationship with Barkus as with the rest of the Brotherhood. Mm. So you thought maybe he was pulling a punch here by just putting one of the comic relief out there as the one who would be sacrificed when it could have been one of the real well-developed characters. Yeah, exactly. It, it would have been more impactful for me if it had been one of the more developed characters. There are probably reasons why he didn't do this. Uh, like I said, I haven't read the other two books, the other three books now in the series. So these other characters might come back and have more impact later. My worst of the best was the magic system in general and specifically how it relates to the blood song. So I would have really enjoyed finding out that Valen's blood song was a different beast, let's say, than the Dark's magic. Something maybe based on the fact that this wolf kept appearing and that it didn't seem to give him any particular skills. Like we talk about Bracus's ability to forge metal with his hands and the, the one eye could shoot fire and old woman, blind woman could store memories. His seemed very kind of vague. And I really wanted it to be something in its own league and separate from the dark magic. I wanted it to be like a, an instinctual thing that had something to do with the wolf or nature or the wild. And I think that the fact that it ended up just being part of the dark left me a little upset. Yeah, that's fair, especially with all the time that they spend delving into the blood song. Maybe there could have been something a little more unique about it. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he shared it with the sculptor and the sculptor led a life of just telling whether or not people were lying and sculpting stuff felt so different to the way that Valen uses it made me... It, it kind of felt like Valen got cheated a little bit. I know it's been, it was extremely useful and, 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 and all that, but I just felt like there could have been more. So mine is, I really loved the structure of the story. I liked how it was framed. I liked all, all the events that were happening in a fast pace, really kept the plot going. But I almost wish this was two separate books, because I don't think the war with Alperia got enough time. I feel like this plot could have been expanded more, especially where it was the main issue to the framing story and to modern day. It's like we're more than halfway through the book and the war is finally starting and could it not have been a little more fleshed out? Maybe some of the other things could have been built out more. Overall, really liked the book, but maybe I was hoping for two books. I guess that's my worst of the best. I could see that, especially because we could have gotten a little more detail in his time post-capture. Like, I would have been interested to see a little bit more of the Alperian Empire than the few notes that we kind of got on it. Yeah, I agree. I think a second book would have allowed a little more buildup of that relationship, but I thought was not great with uh, Barkus and fleshing out other characters, secondary characters that were a little flat in my mind. Cool. That is a wrap for our review of Bloodsong. Alex, Zach, thanks for coming on. This has been a, it's been a great conversation. Thanks for humoring me with one of uh, my favorite books. I, I hope it's a book that maybe gets a little more recognition out there, especially with the Dark Song coming out in August. So just one month away. So thanks for coming on. Let's let the listeners know how to find you guys. Can they uh, just find you on, on Twitter, Spotify? I'm, I'm assuming everywhere. 
you're out there as a hero's journey? Yeah, like Steven said, we're um, everywhere at a hero's journey. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We're uh, going to be diving back into the Mistborn series when this is out. We're going to talk about the Well of Ascension uh, and Vin's hero's journey. I hope you guys can come check that out. Nice. Did you guys just cover uh, the, the first Mistborn book? We're actually just releasing an episode on that pretty soon as well. <laughs> yeah, we did it um, a couple weeks ago, but we're trying to get a wide wide base of books before we dive down further into uh, sequels. I think we got in some of the Mistborn uh, circles, we got some pushback from choosing, not choosing Vin in the first book, even though we had plans to choose her for the second book for the hero's journey. But I liked the the one that we ended up with in the first book. We talked about Kelsier and I think he had a pretty fun journey. And I really like the character, so I wanted to talk about him more. That's the best character, yeah. Yeah, come on, I agree. Well, I don't know what the pushback's about. So tune into that episode. Uh, Alex, Zach, thanks for coming on. If you like Phantology Books, also check us out kind of everywhere out there at Phantology Books. We have a website, www.phantologybooks.com. And if we made some mistakes on here or you just want to chat with us, check out our Discord. Our invites are on our Twitter account and on the website. So um, once again, guys, uh, thanks. And this this has been fun. And this is Steven signing off. Thanks for having us, Steven. Appreciate it.